We often think of meditation as being at the very heart of the path of awakening. And in many ways it is. The development of mindfulness, concentration, of equanimity, all make possible the wisdom that liberates the mind. But as many of you will be leaving tomorrow, and the others leaving in a month or so, it's important to remember that the Buddha's path of liberation is much more inclusive of all of our life's activities than just the invaluable but specialized situation of intensive retreat. (coughs) We need to remember and internalize the understanding in a very meaningful way that our whole life is our practice. It's not just formal meditation practice. You know, and we see this with unmistakable clarity in the Buddhist teachings of the Eightfold Path. It's the Eightfold Path, which is the path to awakening. And how many folds does the Eightfold Path have? (laughs) It has eight. (laughs) (coughs) So having established ourselves to some extent in right understanding, and in right thought, which are the thoughts of renunciation, thoughts of loving kindness, thoughts of compassion. In the next three steps of this Eightfold Path, the Buddha lays out how right understanding and how right thought can be applied in our lives. So these are the next three steps, and it has to do with right speech, right action, and right livelihood. So it's interesting just to notice as we reflect on our own commitment to practice, commitment to liberation, might notice how we might have the tendency to make these three steps on the path be of somewhat lesser importance. than developing meditation or mindfulness or concentration. They're important, but not quite as important. You know, and we often, <coughs> we often hold our practice in that way. But if we think in this way, we are really fragmenting our lives. We're saying one part of our life is about the practice, and the whole rest of our life is something else. It's interesting to notice that of the 10 unwholesome actions that the Buddha urged us to avoid, now he spoke of the 10 unwholesome actions, seven of them, seven of the 10, are purified by these three steps on the path of right speech, right action, and right livelihood. So this is not something secondary. You know, it's not of lesser importance. And as we give attention to these steps, 
we really begin to see the role of ethics as being not simply a way to live, to live a good life, but we see ethics in its relationship to freedom, to liberation. <clears throat> so the first of this triad of path factors is right speech. And that's what I'd like to talk about this evening. Excuse me a minute. So right speech. Speech is such a powerful influence on our lives precisely because we speak a lot. A good part of our lives is spent talking. And we can see, it doesn't take much insight to see, that speech conditions our relationships, the way we speak conditions the quality of our hearts, of our minds, and it also conditions karmic consequences in the future. So speech is something powerful that we need to pay attention to. So the most basic aspect of right speech is truthfulness. Refraining from saying that which is untrue. And although this may seem so obvious and straightforward, simply don't say what is untrue, it may not be as easy to practice as we assume. So it's worth really investigating this idea of truthfulness. (coughs) So there are many kinds of false speech from slight exaggerations or humorous untruths to falsehoods whose motivation might be a kind of self-protection or maybe we have a motivation to protect others you know and that becomes a reason in our minds for speaking that which is untrue sometimes hopefully not often, there may be deliberate lies, you know, with a malicious intent (coughs) to cause divisiveness or harm. We see this played out on a national scale in every election year, where the norm is for candidates to make many statements and claims, many of which are simply untrue. And I I read one report recently, actually I heard it on the radio, that the most honest of the candidates now running spoke truth little more than 50% of the time. Isn't that amazing? And that's the most honest. So there's something a little askew here, you know, in terms of uh, our commitment, you know, and our value, 
of valuing of this. So we might inquire in our own lives. You know, whenever we might be saying something which is untrue, just to even if it's a small one, you know, hopefully it's not some big untruth that wants to cause harm, but at whatever level, whenever we find ourselves saying something which is not quite true, can we stop and pay attention and inquire, you know, inside, well, what's the motivation? Is it greed for something? You know, is it we're really wanting something and so we bend the truth a little bit? Is it a desire for recognition? You know, or some kind of self-aggrandizement? Or maybe we tell a little lie or a big lie out of fear of rejection from someone, or out of jealousy. There could be many different motives and we want to understand ourselves. We want to see what's going on in our minds. Speaking untruths also becomes very complicated. It complicates our lives a lot. Because then we need to tell other lies to support the first ones. And then we need to remember all of it. And Mark Twain, with his usual humor, insightful humor, he said, if you tell the truth, you don't have to remember anything. <laughs> it's helpful to uh, remember that. You know, it just makes our lives very simple. But even more than that, more than that simplicity, as we all know, lying is a tremendously harmful and corrosive force in our relationships, in our society, <coughs> because it undermines our ability to trust. So the great German philosopher Nietzsche, he said, I'm not upset that you lied to me, I'm upset that from now on I can't believe you. you know, and we know that from you know, different, perhaps, personal relationships we've had when somebody has been untruthful, that sense of trust <coughs> has been lost. <coughs> the Buddha spoke of this very directly, very bluntly. <coughs> he said, thus one should never knowingly speak a lie. <coughs> either for the sake of one's own advantage or for the sake of another person's advantage or for the sake of any advantage whatsoever. So that's a very unambiguous statement. <coughs> Thus one should never knowingly speak a lie. <coughs> and it's said that in the Bodhisattva's long journey to Buddhahood, <coughs> you know, and in, in the teachings spend countless lifetimes as a bodhisattva perfecting all the qualities of a Buddha, the paramis. It's said that at different times over the course of these many lifetimes, the bodhisattva broke all of the different precepts at one time or another in those many lives. But it's said that the one precept that he didn't break in all that time was the precept about truthfulness. You know, so central is truthfulness to the path of awakening. 
So we need to really make this very conscious in our lives, you know, as an inspiration for our own commitment to being truthful. But what is so surprising is that something which seems so simple, just be truthful, can be surprisingly difficult at times. You know, because very often little lies just seem to tumble out before we are even conscious of it. So a story which I've told very often, but it's, it's so illustrative of this uh, tendency. <coughs> this happened years ago at the retreat center uh, <coughs> during one of the three-month retreats. And like here at the retreat center, there are these big walk-in refrigerators and freezers where the food is stored. So one evening, <coughs> a staff person was going into the refrigerator for something, and there was a yogi, you know, in the, in the walk-in refrigerator with their kind of hand in the box of almonds or something. And the staff person very politely said, oh, can I help you? And just without, without thinking at all, you know, the yogi replied, oh, I'm looking for the maintenance person. <laughs> you know, <it's> just <laughs> the first thing that came to mind. <laughs> The kind of self-protective mode. <laughs> so again, this wasn't a lie with great malicious intent, but just uh, there are strong tendencies in the mind. You know, just another another example. Uh, at the end of the three-month course uh, at the retreat center, we usually have a few days of integration where people are talking with one another uh, in different group discussions. And after some of those discussions, one of the yogis came up to me and it was, I guess, a little bit by way of confession, but also just reporting, you know, that as yogis were talking to one another and part of it was talking about their meditation and how long do you sit, you know, and how long do you sit. And this person said, for some reason, whenever that was a topic of discussion, he always added 15 minutes <laughs> you know, to his, his sitting capacity. <laughs> and again, it's just, it's just a small little thing. But we can be aware of these small little things, these small falsehoods. There might also be lies of omission, you know, where we're covering or withholding something that's of importance. So the poet Adrienne Rich, she wrote, lying is done with words and also with silence. So that's, a, that's an even more subtle aspect. The untruths can be not only what we say, but at times maybe what we don't say. And we can see this a lot in our society, just in, in thinking about this talk. I was <coughs> reminded of a line from a Bob Dylan song from Blowing in the Wind. You know, and one of the lines is, how many times can a man turn his head 
and pretend that he just doesn't see. So just when we look at the injustices in our society, you know, the racism or the homophobia or sexism or many kinds of injustice and oppression, which can be so blatant and so obvious, <coughs> but how many times do we just turn our heads and pretend that we just don't see? You know, so that's another kind of, it's kind of an internal lying. You know? So there's a lot of depth to this, to this inquiry. Or we might be living under the illusion that yes, this, all this may happen with other people, but I would never lie. So I had a very powerful um, situation where I saw that if we don't acknowledge the potential in our own minds for this possibility, it becomes much harder to see it when it actually happens. Because we're living under the illusion that, oh, I would never do that. So one, this was an extremely <coughs> powerful and painful and ultimately freeing experience I had in my meditation practice uh, with Saira Upandita. And this goes back you know, more than 30 years, the, the first time that I sat with him. And as you know, he's he was a very formidable teacher, you know. So we were going for interviews, and we were going for interviews every day, and it was very intense, and the whole form of reporting was intense, and he was very intense. Uh, and I was lost in some idea of where my practice was. You know, I was familiar with all the stages of insight and this and that, and I had some idea of where I was on the path. And I was, in some way, presenting my report through the filter of that belief. It wasn't just a simple report on what was actually going on. It was shaded, you know, through that sense or belief of where I was. I finished my report and Saida just said three words to me. He said, that's not true. I was devastated. I can, you can imagine, I mean, the, inten the intensity of the situation and this revered teacher and you, it was devastating. It took me days to recover. You know, so I would be sitting for days just filled with guilt and shame and just all the feelings, you know, all the emotions you might imagine, self-judgment. But finally I came to a certain realization, and it was a freeing realization, of acknowledging, oh yeah, my mind can do that. My mind did do that. You know, and so there it was in, in headlights. And there was a great freedom in that recognition, even though it was incredibly painful to see and to have it pointed out in that way. But I was letting go of the previously unnoticed, 
pretense and delusion that my mind would be incapable of doing that. That was my belief. And by seeing and by opening, oh yeah, the mind, the mind can do that also. You know, it can shade the truth even in situations where one would think we would never do it. Then it became much easier. Once I acknowledge, oh yeah, this, this can also happen. The mind can do this. It, become, it became much easier to recognize kind of whatever impulses there were that arose in the mind to do it. And less self-judgmental about it all. And the ability actually through seeing it to refrain from that kind of speech. So, honesty about our own minds and about what it can do and what it does do at different times As, as one character in the book, Zorba the Greek, said, self-knowledge is always bad news. <laughs> the more we look at our minds, the more we see all of these shadowy parts of ourselves. But we need to see them. And it's ultimately liberating and freeing to see them. Because as we do, as we open up to the shadow side and we can make it more conscious, then we're able to make wiser choices. When we don't see it, when we're simply living in the delusion that our minds would never do such a thing, then we're simply acting out all of these sometimes hidden patterns. You know, truthfulness as the first aspect of right speech, it has profound implications. This is, this is a, a big thing because our whole goal in practice is to see what is true. In fact, that's one of the meanings of the word dharma, the true nature of things. And so when we're practicing the dharma, we are actually practicing what is true. So Bhikkhu Bodhi wrote about this in his book on the Noble Eightfold Path. He said, truthful speech establishes a correspondence between our inner being and the real nature of phenomena. Thus, much more than simply being an ethical principle, Devotion to truthful speech is a matter of taking our stand on reality rather than illusion. Yeah, it's, it's, I think it's a beautiful statement because it connects our speech to our commitment to seeing things truthfully, to seeing things as they are. So again, the Buddha was so clear about when we read the suttas and the texts, <coughs> he expressed the overriding importance of this in a conversation he had with his son, Rahula, who at the time was a novice monk. So the Buddha pointed to a bowl with just a little bit of water at the bottom. And he said, so little 
that just like that little bit of water. So little is the spiritual achievement of one who is not afraid to tell a deliberate lie. Therefore, one should not tell a deliberate lie even in jest. These are strong statements. And so, can we bring our mindfulness, you know, and the dedication to our practice, to this huge realm of speech? This is a very big part of all of our lives. At the same time, we we need to recognize that this is a practice. We may and probably will not be perfect in it. You know, there may be times when little lies tumble out. Oh, I'm just looking for the maintenance person. (laughs) You know, or shading the truth to present ourselves in a certain way, or the many ways. You know, we may not be perfect in this, but if we take it as a practice and we're committed to it as a practice, then we're sensitizing ourselves to those times when we might be saying a small falsehood. It's almost as if a little mindfulness bell goes off within us. You know, we find ourselves having said something, oh, that wasn't exactly true. It's as if this mindfulness bell goes off, ah, oh, yes, that was not true. You know, so it, it helps to wake us up if we really establish our commitment to right speech. Okay, so truthfulness is the first aspect of it. The second aspect of right speech is refraining from slandering, from gossip, from backbiting, those words that cause disharmony and loss of friendship. And again, the Buddha is very direct. He said, what one has heard here is not repeated there, so as to cause dissension. What one has heard there is not repeated here, so as not to cause dissension. One unites those who are divided and encourages those who are united. One delights and rejoices in concord, and it is in concord or harmony that one spreads by one's words. So this this itself is a very powerful practice. So a question for us to consider, given the strong worldwide tendency to gossip, you know, and to speak about others. So I think a question, this is not unique to any you know, particular person. This is, I think, the nature, the as, as it says in the Buddhist text, the nature of the uninstructed worldlings, which is most of humanity, you know. And we love, we kind of love this kind of gossiping. So it's interesting just to inquire why. You know, what is the pleasure? What is the enjoyment of it? When we're gossiping about others, does it in some way reaffirm our own sense of self? It would be interesting to look, you know, the next time we find ourselves in that situation. 
what's the pleasure in it? What is the enjoyment of it? Is there some ego gratification? <clears throat> Another <coughs> example of this, this one has had a happier outcome for me. <coughs> Again, this goes back years to when I was first starting to teach, maybe, you know, in the late 70s. So meditation was just beginning to, you know, really become known in the culture. And it was well before it became popular. <clears throat> and there was quite a well-known journalist who came up to interview me about meditation and, you know, kind of this new thing that was beginning to happen. And he was a very skilled journalist. And he started asking me <coughs> about all the various teachers who were teaching meditation. And of course, I had my own opinions and two cents about everyone he mentioned. And I could just feel, you know, he'd ask me, oh, what do you think about so-and-so? And I could feel that, in, oh, yeah, you know. <laughs> but I, fortunately, at that time, I was mindful enough to see that impulse. I said, no, you know, I don't need to say this. And so I didn't. I didn't speak about anybody else. And then a few weeks later, when the article came out and everything I had said was in the article, I reflected with tremendous appreciation of the restraint that I managed to have because I was just imagining well, what if I had actually given voice <coughs> to all these various opinions and then they were all in the article? It would have felt terrible. So there's a great power <coughs> in being aware when we can before we give voice to this. I first became interested in Buddhism when I was in the Peace Corps in Thailand. So I had finished college um, teaching English in the Peace Corps. And it was my first introduction <coughs> to Buddhism and the Buddhist teachings, and I got very interested and excited and enthusiastic. And first learning about the Eightfold Path and right speech. So I was reading about this, and I decided that for a period of time, I was just going to make an experiment and not speak about any third person. If the person wasn't there, I wasn't going to speak about them. It was amazing. It was like 90% of my speech was eliminated. You know, it was so astounding to realize how much of our talk is about other people. You know, and there was some very interesting uh, consequences of that experiment. One is, I found my mind became much less judgmental because I wasn't giving voice to the judgments, even if they weren't harsh, you know, even you know, friendly ones. But if I wasn't giving voice to that pattern of judging others, I found that my mind actually got a lot quieter. And as there was less judgment of others, I also saw that there was a lot less self-judgment you know, because I wasn't reinforcing that pattern. So you might, if you want, just to make an experiment for a period of time. Um, it, sometimes it can be challenging 
You know, if you're with somebody and they're speaking about somebody else, I smiled a lot. (laughs) (laughs) Just finding ways not to engage in the conversation or even to say what one is practicing. You know, it becomes a little education moment. But even if we're not following such a strict guideline, you know, and we just engage in a normal conversation, we can still take a lot of care in how we speak of other people. What is the motivation? And this goes back to the Buddha's words, which I have found to be an incredibly important practice. What one has heard here is not repeated there so as to cause dissension. You know, when we're speaking about others, just in, you know, in a friendly way or among friends, what is our intention? Is the intention to bring people together or is the intention to divide in some way? Simply paying attention to that would have a tremendous impact on our speech and would be very transformative. You know, it would be transformative in the world. If in our speech, in speaking about other people, we only spoke that which brought people together rather than to divide them, that would transform not only our own worlds and relationships, you know, but it, it would have a huge influence just in our society, in our culture. On another whole level, speech can be a kind of gossip about ourselves. It's really a form of mana, which is the Pali word usually translated as conceit. You know, it's just that sense uh, that understood the I am. You know, I am better than, I'm worse than, I'm equal to. It doesn't matter what the comparison is. It's the constellation of the I amness. (coughs) So this is mana. And so we can notice if in our speech, if in our conversation, we're overly self-referential. You know, and I'm sure we've certainly noticed it in other people. What can we notice (coughs) in ourselves if we're (coughs) always bringing the conversation back to ourselves in some way or another? And again, it's it's insightful to look at the motivation Or we might have the opposite kind of mana. You know, rather than always taking center stage, being at the center of things, maybe we are always staying behind the scenes and never giving voice to what we think or feel. That's another kind of mana I am. <clears throat> you know, maybe we're feeling inferior. We don't feel worthy of speaking. So it's just to look at all these kinds of speech and not speech to see what the motivation is behind it. It is such a powerful mirror and reflection for our states of mind. Speech, because it's so obvious when when we're really being mindful, it's out there. And if we're looking, if we're paying attention, 
it's such a mirror of what our minds are doing. I had another (coughs) interesting uh, example of the power of mana, of conceit. You know, this defilement is not uprooted until one is an arhant. So even after we've freed ourselves from the view of self and freed ourselves from desire and anger, these these are high stages of realization, mana is still there. It's not uprooted until the final stage of liberation. It goes very, very deep. So I had an example of this. I was with a friend, and we were <coughs> driving back from New York. And I had the thought to say something that was not related really to anything. It wasn't related to our experience, you know, what we had done. It was just, it was just an I am thought. It was basically a thought that was just announcing, here I am. We'd, you know, we're all friends and we're driving in the car for hours, but this thought came to say something. It was really... But I saw it. I saw it in my mind. Oh, that's really just mana. And it went away. And about 15 seconds later, the same thought comes. And I see you. It went away. Third time, fourth time, fifth time. It kept coming back. And I don't know what number it was, the 15th time or the 20th time, out it came. <laughs> you know, it was just so interesting. You know, I, I, was, I was being mindful in that time. So it was interesting to observe the power of it. And it was about something completely unimportant. There was, there was no, no reason to say it, except that the force of mana wanted to be expressed. So speech, and if we're paying attention to it, it can reveal things about our minds. You know, it can reveal the potency and the power of different defilements in the mind. And likewise, it can reveal the wholesome intentions. The third aspect of right speech has to do with the emotional tone, you know, in our minds and our hearts as we're speaking. What's the energy behind our words? So the Buddha talked of this aspect, you know, of right speech as refraining from harsh, angry, or abusive speech. And again, the Buddha was really clear. He said, one speaks such words as are gentle, soothing to the ear, loving. Such words as go to the heart are courteous, friendly, and agreeable to many. Can we practice that? Can we practice speaking in that kindly way? Years ago when I was uh, practicing doing my practice in India, in Bodhgaya. So this goes back to the late 60s. There were just a few of us then. Uh, this was before lots of people came. And then, uh, maybe there were 10 of us staying at this Burmese Vihara in Bodhgaya. And it was uh, not a structured retreat, but we were all doing our own practice. 
So there's a little bit of an informality about it. And we had been there quite a long time. And one evening we all got together and there was a young woman there who uh, had a guitar. And uh, so in the evening as we were sitting around, uh, she, she said they had just written this song. And the thought I had, she said she had written a song about all of us. And the thought that I had in mind, oh yeah, this is going to kind of be like a funny roast. You know, we're just pointing out the, uh, the quirks of each person. You know, as we're very likely to do in that situation. But instead, and it was so surprising, her song, in speaking about each person, she wrote about what their beautiful qualities were. And that was, that was her song. <laughs> and what surprised me was how surprising it was to me. <laughs> because I expected exactly the opposite. You know, and it was unusual to have somebody express things in that loving way. And it, it was striking and very beautiful. So it's an example of how we can use our speech in a way that creates concord, that creates harmony, that brings people together. You know, we really need to be conscious of the energy behind our words. Just think of how you might feel if there are angry, harsh words being directed at you. you know, how would we feel? Mostly, we would feel hurt or defensive or maybe get angry in return. That is not a good environment for communication when that kind of energy is happening between people. And really, the essence of right speech is about connection. It's about communication. So we need, to, we need to pay attention to the quality of the energy of our words. You know, and here it's not so much a question of suppressing feelings or emotions. So sometimes we, we may need to say, you know, maybe difficult things, but how do we say it? Can we say it in a way that connects? in a way that can be heard. Right speech also has implications for how we listen. How do we listen to others speaking? There's one teaching from the Buddha on this. It's, about, it's really about right listening, which is <laughs> it is a great practice and very challenging. So I'll read what he said and you'll see how challenging and what uh, a high level the Buddha is suggesting that we practice at. He said, Bhikkhus, there are five ways of speech that others may use when they speak to you. Their speech may be timely or untimely, true or untrue, gentle or harsh, connected with good or with harm, spoken with a mind of loving kindness or with a mind of inner hate. Herein, because you should train yourself thus, 
Our minds will remain unaffected. We shall utter no unskillful words. We shall abide compassionate for their welfare with a mind of loving-kindness. Okay, so just imagine, somebody is yelling at you very harshly, saying that which is untrue, wanting to cause you harm. And the Buddha is saying, we should train ourselves thus. Our minds will remain unaffected. We shall utter no unskillful words. We shall abide compassionate for their welfare. You see how challenging? That's, that's, That's a huge, challenging practice. But it is really the practice of being present, of being mindful. It's, this is mindfulness externally, right? where we're mindful of what the other person is doing, even with all the unskillfulness that's present, but our hearts can remain unaffected. And actually practice feeling compassion for their welfare. So this is not easy to do, but I love having it as a reference point for a possibility. You know, so when we find ourselves in those situations, maybe we can remember this, and it just helps us a little bit to stay in that place of openness, of compassion, of metta. Do you see that right speech is not some secondary practice on a spiritual path? The practice of right speech can bring us right to the edge of our capacity and our willingness to be present. So it's, it's an essential part of our path of practice. Okay, the last aspect of right speech, it's not saying that which is untrue, it's not gossiping and backbiting, it's not speaking harshly or angrily. The last aspect, is refraining from useless talk. And the Pali word for this, I think is my favorite word in Pali. <coughs> and <coughs> it's, a, it's, it's a word that expresses uh, anamanapiya, which means that the word sounds like what it is. So the, the Pali word for useless talk is sampapalapa. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Just don't sampapalapa. <laughs> it, it's just what it sounds like. <laughs> you know, and I have just seen this so often, just in ordinary social situations, just hanging out with friends. You know, just hanging out, and it's not, we're not saying anything bad or harsh speech, but how often I can see the tendency of the mind just to say something that is completely useless. It has no point whatsoever, except to be speaking. That's, that's the only point of it. This can have some harmful consequences. So this is a story of a friend of mine from New York. He was taking a trip to Bali. He got on the plane and he had injured his arm. 
So he had a rubber exercise ball you know, to exercise his hand and arm. The flight attendant came by and just was interested and said, what is that? So keep in mind, this was before 9-11. So you have to keep that in mind. So the flight attendant just says, what is that? And just by way of joking, he said, plastique, which is an explosive. You know, it's what people use to blow things up. So within, t- this, this is even before 9-11, within a couple of minutes, uh, the police were on plane, they took him off, the airline threatened to, to never let him fly again. Uh, you know, it took him days to disentangle from that one moment of a use from some Papa Lapa. Yeah. So usually it doesn't have quite as dramatic consequences, but it can. But more important, what I've noticed is when I see that tendency, and it's a common one, this is you know, just the urge to say something that is really useless. When I see that impulse, and I can be mindful of it, and refrain from speaking of it, speaking it, can feel the conservation of energy. You know, that kind of speech is just, it's like energy leaks, it's enervating. We actually, uh, we lose the respect of others because our words, at least in that situation, are useless. So every time we can see it, no, I don't have to say that. There's really a very good feeling. It feels like one of life's little victories over Mara. You know, Mara says, oh yeah, just say that, even though it's useless. No, no, I don't have to say that. You know, we've settled back and there's a feeling of strength. There's a feeling of inner strength. So there's one meditation teacher, his name is Jonathan Faust. He has a very good acronym. You know, acronym is, you know, uh, initials, letters, uh, which stand for things. So his acronym is WAIT, W-A-I-T. And it stands for, why am I talking? (laughs) And when I read that, perfect. Can we remember that? Why am I talking? It would reveal a lot about our minds. You know, so in this way, this kind of attention shows us, it's a reflection, it's a mirror of what's going on in our minds. So again, the Buddha expressed it in this way. He said, one speaks at the right time in accordance with facts, speaks what is useful, speaks of the Dharma. Such a person's speech is like a treasure, uttered at the right moment, accompanied by reason, moderate and full of sense. So here, the Buddha was really talking to monastics, and so he's given quite a high standard, you know, basically saying one should speak only the Dharma. Bhikkhu Bodhi, he had in some of his writings, he explained that as lay people, maybe we have slightly, you know, wider parameters, acknowledging, as Bhikkhu Bodhi said, 
we may have, this is, these are his words, we have more need for affectionate small talk as lay people with family and friends, polite conversation with acquaintances, or talk in connection with our work. But even, you know, in these more expanded guidelines for our life in the world, can we pay attention to Sampapalapa? Even as we're speaking, you know, in a more relaxed way, can we refrain from useless talk? It's a tremendously powerful practice. So it's not by accident, you know, that the Buddha gave so much importance to this. This is the third step on the Eightfold Path. This is, this is a key element of our spiritual practice. And it's such a powerful one because speech is such a big part of our lives. It's, it's not a small thing. If we really take on right speech as a practice, this is a very powerful way of imbuing our lives with mindfulness. You know, people often ask, well, how can I bring the practice into the world? If we did nothing other than pay attention to speech, we would be mindful throughout most of the day. So, can we really take this on? You know, when we do, not only does it cultivate abstinence from unwholesome mind state, but right speech or wise speech also can help cultivate, you know, the beautiful qualities of metta, of loving kindness, of compassion, of sympathetic joy. And most importantly, as we practice right speech, it aligns us and it keeps us in alignment with what is true. And that is the very essence of Dharma practice. So I'll just close with this is also from the suttas. The Buddha says, if speech has five marks, it is well spoken, not badly spoken, blameless and above reproach from the wise. What are these five marks? It is speech that is timely, true, gentle, purposeful, and spoken with a mind of loving kindness. So if we can keep these in mind, speech that is timely, it's true, it's gentle, it's purposeful, and spoken with a mind of kindness, of loving kindness. So then this becomes a powerful force for the Dharma in our lives. Let's just sit for a couple of minutes.